This week on the podcast, talking about what legislative tracking looks like and what it actually takes to get your message to be heard by Congress and staffers. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Alex Worth, the CEO and co-founder of Quorum, a legislative tracking software. Alex, how's it going, man? George, it is great to be with you today. Thanks for having me on. You know, any time is an interesting time to talk about politics here in these United States. I have known of you, known of your work for quite some time, and fundamentally, I just love that there's a tool to help us listen to the freaking government, right? That's great. I love it. Uh, well, can thank you, explain, you. Can you explain a little bit more, though, about what a legislative tracking tool actually is? So what we do is we track all the information that is coming off Capitol Hill. So think all the bills, the committee hearings, but also what legislators are saying on social media. So in their tweets, Facebook posts and press releases, and then put that into a platform where people can search across it. We've been called the Google for Congress. So you can find any organization name, any issue, any subject or mentioned that a member of Congress has said. And then we've taken that same approach and also expanded across all 50 states. So we can do it for the 7,300 state legislators that are out there and are tracking what they're doing, both in the legislation they introduce, as well as in the statements that they're posting on social media. Uh, and then the other part of it that I think is relevant for our conversation today is that we do grassroots advocacy tools. So tools to write your member of Congress, tweet your member, call your member, uh, as well as some more tools focused on grass tops advocacy that help organizations be able to go and get their advocates and members and donors to participate in the political process. Oh, it's a very comprehensive list that you have. Uh, with regard to the folks I can get in touch with, it sounds like you're listening to senators and House of Representatives. I'm not like going down to like the aldermen of the, the lower county if I haven't heard of them, am I? We have the ability to monitor what city officials are saying on social, but most of our clients are focused to what those senators and members of Congress are talking about, as well as what governors are, and state legislators are talking about. There's so much to dig into here. Can you give me a practical use case of how listening to my congressperson as an organization might influence my strategy? You know, how does that shape what I do? Because I, I mean, frankly, I, I, I want them to, to know and care about my thing. Like, I want to save the caterpillars. I don't care what they're talking about. Can you make this a bit more practical for me? So probably the easiest one is to give you a case study. Uh, and that is that we work for the Sierra Club and their office in Washington, D.C., as well as their team across all 50 states. Uh, the Sierra Club, both in real life, cares about the caterpillars, but also more broadly about the environment in general. And one of the things that they found when they were onboarding onto the quorum platform is that they were blown away by the number of members of Congress and state legislators who were already talking about them that they didn't know. And so when you take it, it can literally tell you every state legislator that's ever talked about caterpillars. And if there's 7,300 state legislators, I can bet that there's probably at least 50 or 100 who care about caterpillars as much as you do. And now it might be a little bit of a jovial example here, but it applies to any issue, whether it might be Alzheimer's or the environment 
or another advocacy issue that an organization is working on. And so that ability to find so many new champions that you never thought before existed is a huge part of the magic of the quorum platform. And then ongoing, it's the power to be able to get that information in real time, some fairly simple social listening of when that elected official or member of Congress then talks about the issue. And that's a chance for the organization to amplify, retweet it out and share and be able to say, look, you care about this issue, advocate. And oh, by the way, your elected officials do, too. And here's our organization being the connecting the dot or making sure that the elected officials care about it. And that's the type of coalition and momentum building that you need to have a really big impact on an advocacy issue. Can you talk to me about the aware to care to committed cycle or funnel for an elected representative? Like, what does it really look like to bring someone on to, you know, a, a topic you care about? It requires a lot of work. Uh, elected officials are elected to represent the needs of their constituents. And when you look at an average congressional district, they have probably about 800,000 people in that individual district, which means that those people are reaching out to them all the time about a wide variety of different issues. So be intentional about your efforts of both who you're targeting and then very both persuasive and aggressive in the amount of messaging that you are sending them and how you're working to reach out to them. Simply just writing your member of Congress and asking them to do one thing by one person isn't going to move the needle because so many other people are doing it. But instead, you need to think about how do you get 100 people to write your member of Congress, not just in a year, but in the same day or same week, and then follow that up with an in-person meeting with their staff and a very specific ask and a coalition of organizations that all think that something is a good idea to start to then be able to move the, the member of Congress. And, not, and that's necessary to just get them aware. But then you have to do that repeatedly to get them more committed and actually willing to really take on and champion your individual issue. You've touched on a point that I kind of love, which is action over time. And you can take those hundred letters and send them over the course of two years. And the net impact would be quite low. You take those same hundred letters and you get them there in 48 hours. Suddenly you go from, you know, what is uh, a slight annoyance to a an urgent issue, tying up the phones and that type of tactic. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Is that actually what plays out? Is that actually what happens? It is. So I actually probably about 10 years ago was an intern uh, in the United States Senator's office, and I was responsible for answering the phones. And what we had is we had a call sheet, and we would list how many calls that we received on a day and on what issue, and that would get sent around to all the staff in the office, and I think probably the senator saw it as well. And if you had one or two calls on that call sheet every single day, you'd be at the bottom of the list, and you might not even make the email. But if you had you know, 50 calls in a day or 100 calls, you were near the top of that call sheet. And if those calls were on a really specific and niche issue, somebody then asks and says, why are all these people calling us on this issue? Who has met with them? Who knows them? Or what's happening on this given item? And hey, we need to be reacting to it. The other piece of this is it comes with email and mail. So every message uh, on Capitol Hill, members of Congress try and reply to. Um, specifically letters that are sent. And to do that, they have one of their legislative correspondents, or an LC as we call them here in Washington, actually go and write a letter. But to do that, that letter has got to be approved by the LD, by the chief of staff, and sometimes by the member themselves, especially if that member is going to take a policy position on it. And so if you have 100 letters come in on the same day mentioning a subject, 
then the LC goes to their boss and says, hey, we had 100 letters on this. I had to write this response. Is this okay? And their boss goes, well, let me take this up to the member and make sure he's good with this position. And so suddenly you've escalated and elevated a whole issue that the office wasn't previously thinking about. Now, the last thing that I'll say on this, and this is a little bit of the advocacy trick, is, is that with software platforms, it's possible to hold the messages. So you don't have to sit there and go and deliver 100 messages in 48 hours. But instead, you can use three weeks, build up 100 messages, and then flick a switch and have them all delivered the same day, uh, which is one of the benefits that modern technology brings all of us. Can you say a bit more about that? You're saying that's what Quorum does as a deliberate tactic, saying, hey, you've used this click to send an email or tweet, and you sort of delay it for a date? So we have the ability to do that. Some of our clients opt into doing that, others don't, uh, but it is a handy best practice where if you know you're going to have a fly-in day or your team's going to be on the hill, that you should go and run a grassroots advocacy campaign for two weeks and just hold on delaying those messages until that big day and then send them all in at the same time. And that helps create that momentum that offices look for and, and really require to, to respond to something in a meaningful way. What does it actually mean, send them all in? Like In my mind, it's like you're you're like... Mr. Mr. So-and-so goes to Congress uh, and you're like bringing a stack of something, but it sounds like there are digital avenues that I can use, fax, email, I mean calls, like what – can you unpack that a bit more about sending all of those statements to Congress? Yeah. So as you said, uh, there's a whole myriad of, of different options. First off is telephone. Um, unfortunately, there's no way to really control when the messages happen on telephone. You got to have everyone call because you want people directly connected in. So I can't send when like people, a pre-recorded something like, "Hey, I'm going to record this and then just fire it off to them." No, I ha haven't seen that done, and I wouldn't encourage it. Uh, it's not the most uh, persuasive. When offices are talking to lots of real people every day, uh, but with telephone, the thing about it that's relevant is the offices have to stop and answer the phones. And how their phone lines work is that their phone lines get patched from the front desk, then along the totem pole to junior individuals, all the way up to the senior folks if the message isn't actually picked up. So when you have something big happening like healthcare or SOPA PIPA, what would happen is, is that the front desk staff would be on the phone, the LCs would be on the phone, the LAs would be on the phone, and the LDs and the chief of staff were taking and picking up the phone calls. And it freezes the whole congressional office from actually being able to do their day job to the point where they go, hey, we know people really care about this because the only thing I did today was pick up the phone. Now, to be very fair, it is rare that that happens, but that's part of the, really the power of phone calls is that the office hears it in the phone ringing and oftentimes staff, broader than just the front desk staff, will actually be picking up those calls. So that's the first big pathway in. The second uh, is email. So every member of Congress has the ability to receive digital messages on through their website. And a number of software providers, inc including Quorum, have essentially reverse engineered many of those websites to be able to go in and deliver email messages through a central portal that makes it a lot easier to send out an ask to all of your advocates and have them write into their member of Congress. That is probably the easiest one and one of the areas where it is possible to both delay the messages, but then also to do it at scale and target either specific districts or specific committees or members. And with that, you're guaranteed to get a response or almost guaranteed if the member is responding by including the first name, last name and address. And that's really powerful because the member then has to formulate that response. So third big item that offices will receive incoming messages, actual handwritten mail. 
Um, and this can sometimes be in the form of form letters or also can be in the form of individual handwritten notes. And I will say that if somebody writes a really persuasive handwritten note with a meaningful story, that actually probably is the best chance of making it onto a member of Congress's desk because they want to read the letters they're getting from their constituents. Now, isn't always a slam dunk, and there's a lot of mail messages that go in, but certainly there's a possibility for that to be really, really successful. I'll take a brief tangent and highlight one of my experiences from working at the White House, uh, and that is that if you write to the president, all of the mail goes to the mail processing facility. The president only sees maybe 10 letters a day uh, that are shared with him. But if you write to any of the senior officials, after the mail goes to the mail processing facility, it actually ends up at their offices. And so when I was at the White House, some of the senior folks there would be the targets of letter writing campaigns, and they would have stacks of, pro of postcards in their office. And let me tell you that I looked at them, their other staff on their team looked at them, and they couldn't walk in without being like, who's sending me all these postcards? And so I always find that as kind of a little bit of a creative way to use mail. Uh, but same thing is true with members of Congress. And then the last one, number four, with members of Congress, if you can believe it, is, is that many still have fax machines. And that there is a very antiquated and slightly controversial strategy of should you fax your letters in? Because it means that the fax machine wars up and you're starting to send all this mail in and people go, who's faxing us? Uh, but certainly also is a potential opportunity to use, although it is somewhat rare to see people do it. And the final one, because you mentioned it before, seems to be social media. At this point, I believe everyone in Congress has a Twitter account and potentially Facebook page. But is that is that fair? Is that true? Yeah. So every member of Congress has a Twitter and a Facebook page. And as of the last count that I saw, 293 members of Congress were on Instagram, of all places. Snapchat, you see some members on, although the adoption isn't as high. And then the other interesting backstory that folks should know is that on the Senate side, uh, a large majority, if not close to every single U.S. senator, now has a digital director on their team whose sole job is to manage the social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, and also often does many of the email newsletters. On the House side, the offices are not as big, and so they can't afford to have solely a digital director. And so more often than not, uh, you have an individual staffer who's usually the press secretary that's handling it. Now, the challenge with social is that social can be incredibly impactful because you have the ability to show that there's mass support for it and show everyone else online that people really, really care about this issue. On the other hand, the congressional offices aren't fully set up with systems on how to be able to handle incoming social because they don't get the name and address. They don't get to a chance to talk with people privately. And so it's much then a little bit rarer for an individual that tweets on social to get a response from the member of Congress or from the member to really be able to engage because they can't engage on every single tweet. And most offices don't have that process about how to engage on the tweet in the same way to engage on a letter. So one of the best opportunities and options to engage members of Congress on social is either to have your team go in and send them really positive things because a member of Congress wants to get reelected and they would love to show their constituents that other constituents really appreciate the work that they're doing. And there's nothing more fun than hitting that retweet button on a positive tweet or to be able to tweet out more of, you know, factual posts that involve photos of the member of the Congress and the member of Congress doing something. So one of the strategies that we see organizations in Washington do is they'll have a Twitter account focused on advocacy. And if a member comes and participates in a volunteer activity with their volunteers, they tweet out the photo with the volunteers and tag the member. The member loves to retweet that because it shows them out in the community. Same thing true if you've got a group meeting with a member on Capitol Hill, meeting in a district office. 
basically any opportunity for a photo with a member, you should tweet that at the member and then see the member actually go ahead and, and retweet it. So social media is definitely one of those new cutting edge opportunities and presents uh, a lot of opportunity, uh, but it is something that is still being figured out about exactly how does it work best uh, when members of Congress are reading it and responding to it. And it's time to feed the whales with a quick ad about Whole Whale University. This is our best online content packaged in courses. We're talking SEO, content marketing, Google ad grant, cybersecurity, and tons of webinars and other templates for you to use. You can buy them individually or as an annual subscription. Uh, we really put our best work in here. And if you're interested in the topics in this podcast that we tend to cover, we go a mile deep with these courses. That's wholewhale.com slash university. It's great to hear you talk about amplifying sort of the good deeds and saying almost as like, you know, you're in a room full of kindergartners and one starts doing something uh, that you don't want them to do, like throwing blocks. And you say, hey, let's sit on the carpet. And you're like, hey, look at Janie. She's sitting on the carpet so well, everybody. Isn't it nice that Janie's doing this? And then everyone kind of follows in line. So it's a sort of it seems like amplifying the good as opposed to the other side of Twitter, which I normally see, is the, you know, the the shame game, jumping on Twitter storms and, you know, basically targeting one person as the like, hey, you should pay attention to this or why did you not do that? I, I would agree. And, and the reason for that is just like a member of Congress gets a lot of negative tweets from a lot of different people. And so unless you've got thousands of followers and the tweets are going to start to turn into a new story back in the district or thousands of constituents are going to see it because a major person in the district is calling them out. For them, it isn't as relevant if you only have a couple of followers and you're saying something negative and they want to feel about the good things. And again, when you think about advocacy, you want to show that you have a lot of power, that you're behind the member and you're supporting them. And so, again, it goes back to that, that great managerial comment of you want to praise in public and criticize in private. And so this is the other thing some of the best organizations in Washington will do is they'll shower members of Congress with praise, positive tweets, awards, saying they do good things. And then the team goes into the office and says, oh, by the way, we need you to modify your position on this. And what the member of Congress thinks is, oh, one of my biggest supporters, the Alzheimer's Association, the Sierra Club, whoever it might be, you know, really always backs me up and promotes me, but they need this one little thing. And they're way more likely to do that than if you just send a ton of negative energy and tweets at them of someone who's unhappy because members of Congress already get a lot of that in their day to day. I want to repeat that because I feel like in my mind, especially right now with more of the anger generated politics, uh, my my instinct is to just yell loud, yell often and yell in a targeted way at people. And instead, what you're saying is build advocates over time, and they're more likely in the sort of carrot versus stick approach to then respond when you reach out privately, as you mentioned, through those letters, through those calls being like, we've been publicly, you know, we've been publicly you know, praising what you're doing. We think you could do a touch more for the caterpillars. Exactly. And, and that, I think, is spot on, is, is that... When, as you point out on Twitter, there's so much negativity happening out in the world. Members of Congress are getting it all the time that they don't want tons more of it unless it's clear that there's like a negative avalanche or tsunami of feedback coming. And in that case, that's how then they change positions. And the great example of that is, you know, you take Sopa Pippa, where Congress was thinking about doing something related to the Internet and our ability to have a free Internet. 
people called like none other. Congress went, whoa, huge negativity. We can't do that. That's an example where it works really well. But the problem is people see that and think, oh, it's going to work for me if I just do 200 phone calls. And when you have an army of people thinking that same thing, it then doesn't because it's on so many different issues that members of Congress just start to ignore it. There's a stat, uh, according to the Congressional Management Foundation from 2015, saying that it can take fewer than 30 tweets to get the attention of a congressional staffer. Uh, what do you say to that? I think that's very fair. Uh, it's the congressional staffers that are running the accounts. And so if you put 30 tweets in, uh, the congressional staffer is going to see it. It's just the question of are they set up to do anything with it? And are they going to go take that to the member and go, member, we got 30 tweets. I need you to change your position on this. In the same way that if you got 30 emails or 30 phone calls, a member of Congress isn't going to change their position on the issue. Alex, I know this is going to be difficult, but I'm going to put you on the spot here with an accounting congressional question. How many tweets kind of like equals an email? How many emails equals, say, a letter? How many letters equals a phone call in the sort of getting awareness or staffer attention? That's a good one. Uh, if I if I had to think about it here, I'd probably say that four tweets is the equivalent of a phone call because tweets end up being very public and that it would take – eight letters to be the equivalent of a phone call. So phone call is one, tweets are worth four of them to get the equivalent of a phone call, and you need eight letters to get the equivalent uh, of a phone call. So phone, phone is king here. Phone is king. And I won't even go into the, the sort of IRL stuff because we're going to remain on digital. Four tweets to a phone call? Huh. That's some, that's some great inflation. Can I ask you, <laughs> yeah. I, it's far higher than I thought, and I think very interesting because it doesn't cost much to tweet. Can I ask you a question? Like, Do you think the the president's use uh, of Twitter has essentially really brought the importance to a whole new level, or were we on this track anyway with regard to Congress paying attention to you know the characters on that platform? So I think you have to look at uh, inward information, inbound information, and outbound info. The president's use of Twitter has dramatically changed how organizations and members of Congress think about the use of Twitter in Washington, and that they have seen an example of a president who's done a very active job in communicating to the American public and has used Twitter to be able to communicate out his message far and wide. And if you're an elected official, federal, state, or local level, you're looking at that and being like, you're telling me all I have to do is tweet more. And so a lot more organizations, a lot more policy uh, are being mentioned and are happening on Twitter than ever before. And so that outbound communication, I think, has dramatically increased. I think it's harder to say that there is more focus on inbound communication uh, that's happening because of the president. I think more just as people are on the platform and are changing how they communicate in Washington that comes up. But I don't think the president has had a major impact on the I need to be following my tweets because I'm not sure who might be tweeting at me. The item that actually is really going to have the biggest impact here is younger members of Congress who are getting elected and younger U.S. senators coming of age. And there are more and more members of Congress who are actually running their own Twitter accounts. 
and so who increase the chance that they're going to see one of those tweets. And if every member of Congress ran their own Twitter account, I would say that the tweet is the best thing that you could ever possibly do. But right now, the anecdotal numbers that we get is it's maybe 10 to 15 percent of members of Congress are actually running their own Twitter account. And so as a result, you're not talking with them. You're still talking with the staff when you're tweeting up to them. But for the members that do run their own Twitter accounts, then that is where tweets become an incredible source to be able to leverage. And that's the generational change that we're going to see over the course of the next 20 years. This has been fascinating. Thank you for for answering my almost impossible to answer questions. Uh, and, the, and the platform is just fascinating. I've, I've gotten to play with it. And it's tremendous, right? Like if, if this is what you do, it's clearly like you need this command center to, to manage uh, these different tactics and to see whether or not they're resonating. And am I accurate in saying it also sort of tracks activity on the House floor, on the Senate floor or whatnot? Exactly. Mm. We do all that. Mm. I'd be so curious to see, like, you know what I'd love? Some sort of, like, study or analysis of, like, how, you know, the bill becomes a law, but how the, like, tweet becomes a thought becomes a becomes a, a bill, right? Like, how, wh- how much of the social momentum is baked in and around that process, and what is the relationship of that um, with, with their actions? That would be fascinating. Uh, we have not done that research, and to my knowledge, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, but I can anecdotally tell you we're seeing a lot more, especially at the state legislative level, where state legislators are choreographed their actions ahead of time on Twitter. And you can see how they're being influenced either in the articles that they're retweeting in maybe the NCSL, National Conference on State Legislature events that they're going to, and what they're interacting with. And you can use that to start to anticipate some of the policy outcomes that are going to come down the road. So we're seeing more and more of it, but I haven't seen anyone put it together in the beautiful empirical study that you're looking for. Someday, some way. I've given short shrift to Facebook and Instagram for petty personal reasons. Can you talk to me about those platforms, what I should know, what our audience should know? Yeah, so Facebook's really interesting. Uh, It's part of a lot of their privacy changes after Cambridge Analytica. They changed their ability to be able to bulk feed comments onto a public Facebook page. So it is very hard to do grassroots advocacy at scale, going in and commenting on a member's Facebook page or putting tons of comments on a Facebook post. And that's something that used to be really common probably two, three years ago, and now doesn't almost happen at all because people would actually have to log into Facebook and there's, there's not a way to automate it. Uh, Instagram, I think there is, it's the same thing. You can go and comment on a member of Congress's feed. I think we see a lot more members of Congress that are doing Instagram that have personal accounts. Because uh, it just seems a little more easy to use and they can post and it's just sharing a photo. Uh, so that is another area that I think is, is worth using and commenting. The challenge there is, again, just like Facebook, there's not a way to automate it uh, and do it at, at scale. So it's really hard on the in, incoming and getting a message there. But we're seeing a lot more members of Congress use it on the outgoing. The one interesting fact I'll share is, is that when you look at adoption by state legislators, 50 percent of state legislators are on Twitter. And 75% are on Facebook. Uh, and that stat always surprises me, just that the widespread adoption of Facebook uh, on state legislators who really end up using it as a communications tool to their constituents and sharing a lot of information out with them uh, on the platform. How long? I'm planning to help the Caterpillars, really care about them, and 
right now I'm starting at zero. Like how much, you know, in terms of time and effort should I look to do to get like I want to get five members of Congress interested in my save the caterpillar catacat <laughs> save the caterpillar campaign. So it's a great question. Uh, I will tell listeners the best place you go if you want to see quick changes is the local level. Those systems are designed to have a lot more citizen participation, and you can make big changes much, much faster at that level. Uh, at the federal level, you're honestly looking anywhere between three to five years between when you have an idea and when something actually becomes law. It is a slow process. It takes a lot of time. you got to build a lot of energy and momentum to get there. Now, if you just wanted five members, that's the start of your process. You probably could do that in a year. But I think it's important to level set that even with five members, you need so much more for something to go somewhere that you really need, say, over 100 members, both sides of the aisle, so 50 Dems, 50 Republicans, who think something's a good idea to be able to eventually escalate it to leadership and say, hey, we want to pass this in a bill. It's bipartisan. Can you just tack this on and add it on to it? And that's really hard to get that scale. And then that bill goes straight into the Senate and you start all over with the process. So it's really a long term game uh, that you've got to be prepared to do. But having that advocacy there will put you in a place long term where you're prepared to participate in those conversations and advance items forward if you're making a long term effort. But then also, most importantly, where somebody's not going to go and try and either cut a program or add a program that you don't want or do something that is not in the interest of your organization. Uh, if you participate in the process and show that level of support and engagement. I promised that was my last question, but then I came up with another question. And frankly, it's our podcast, our rules. Alex, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very uh, curious here. 501c3s can't technically lobby Congress, right? Like they're actually, you know, prohibited from doing so in general. However, the definitions of this aren't fully clear to me when we get into the landscape of having people tweet on your behalf a certain message. Uh, or some of these other tactics. Can you talk to me about that fine line of what I should know as a C3? Obviously, if you're a C4, you're lobbying, you're fine, you're good to go. What are the what are the rules in place here? Yes. So the first general disclaimer: consult with your lawyers. Do not base my advice as legal advice. As this I is legal advice. He's personally representing <laughs> the exactly what you should do. Continue on with no manner of cover whatsoever. So the important thing to know on, on 501c3 is that, as I believe the, the law is written, a 501c3 needs to spend less than 20% of their time lobbying. So just because you go ask a member of Congress to support a bill doesn't mean that you're going to lose your entire 501c3 status. You just need to make sure that whether it's the organization's resources that you're using to measure that, so percent of budget lobbying or time spent by staff lobbying, that you are very careful to stay under that 20% threshold. The second piece of it is what is the definition of lobbying? And the most specific definition um, that I've seen as it comes to that 501c3 status is actually asking a member of Congress to support a bill and saying, I need you to support this particular bill and talking about a given bill or a given vote. If you're going up to just relationship build or educate and let members know about the work of your organization or to support them and or invite them to a community event, that is not technically lobbying as defined by the law. And we have clients that draw a very fine line between those two things and actually track and record the time that they spend advocating around a bill versus the time that they spend educating to make sure that they're clearly below that 20% threshold around lobbying. So it is possible to do. 
So my education campaign around caterpillars is totally safe if I spend 100% of my time being like, caterpillars are awesome, they eat leaves. Exactly. But if you say caterpillars are awesome, support this bill that gives them more leaves to eat, House Bill 3952, that then becomes lobbying. Aha. And I shouldn't spend more than 20% of my time or tweets on that topic. Of your organization's time. So you can have a person at the organization that is 100% lobbying, but they just need to be uh, one of many people at that organization so that you, you can do the percentages. So no more than 20 people out of 100 whose full time is lobbying. Alex, thank you so much. We're going to move into rapid fire. Please keep your responses. I don't know, about 30 seconds or so. Are you ready? Ready to go. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? So we are just finishing up implementing Lattice, which we are using for performance management to organize our one-on-one -on -one check-in between our team members and their manager, and also to run our biannual check-in process, which is how we do performance reviews. And I have to say, I've been phenomenally impressed by the software and the impact that it's had on the organization and how it's made our lives easier and also helped with better management across the entire team. What tech issues are you currently battling with? So performance management was the big one that we were really struggling to try and figure out how we could make work well and that we were doing it in Google Forms and really struggling because we had a very complicated Google Form system uh, that I believe we've successfully been able to transfer over. So that's our big technology win um, of the last year. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? The thing that we're really interested in and just brought to the Quorum platform is gamification. And we've seen a lot of what's been happening in the consumer world and, and rewards programs. When you think about the Starbucks app, you go into it, you get all these stars when you buy your next latte. We've brought that to grassroots advocacy to be able to every action that you take adds on and expands the gamification so that you get points and credits to it. And I'm very excited to see the impact that that has for our clients and also excited to see more of that gamification appear across the rest of, of other businesses and nonprofits. Talk about a mistake that you've made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now. About three weeks ago, we crossed over 100 team members here at Quorum, which means that my role has pretty dramatically changed from five years ago when it was me and three others uh, to now over 100 team members. And one of the skills that I've really had to learn and where I've made a mistake is jumping in and taking over projects. Uh, and so I've worked very hard to be able to delegate more items and to understand that even when things aren't going well, I need to sit and actually coach team members on how something can work better rather than jump in. And about a year and a half ago, there was a big project we were doing as we were relooking at how we did compensation across the company. Uh, and I jumped in, got way too far in and deep in and, and definitely learned a valuable lesson that I've got to delegate more and, and can't do that. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Absolutely. I think you look at the work that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has done around polio as an amazing example of a commitment that was made, huge strides that have happened, and now the last I saw we're down to two countries still have really active polio that is spreading. And I think that if you're an organization that has such a specific mission like that and you accomplish your mission, you can go out of business and go and declare it and wave the victory flag to do it. Now, I don't think we see it that often, but it is possible. Fred, I throw in the hot tub time machine back to the founding of Quorum. What advice would you give that younger Alex? The advice that to share with our team is to always show up. There were so many elements as we were building the company and, and our organization, and also before that as a social entrepreneur, where it was, should I go to that? Is this conference really valuable? Do I need to be there? Do I want to get on another plane? 
And I've found that consistently throughout my career, every one of those times I've said, nope, I'm going to go show up and do that. And it's amazing because one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And that's how you begin to start to build a movement and get momentum. What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing? We're really working on how to improve productivity. So there's a book called Time, Talent, Energy, and we're trying to get people out of meetings. We're trying to have fewer meetings and be really intentional about what we ask team members to do and where they need to be. Uh, and if we could stop doing as many meetings, I think we would be even more uh, productive. And so that's something that I'm really asking our organization to think about. And also for team members to feel like if they're in a meeting that's not relevant to them, that they can stand up and walk out. And that's totally fine and acceptable. If I gave you a Harry Potter style wand for the industry, what would it do? I think it would put a, a lot bigger focus on technology and on innovation. We've seen some incredible leaps in innovation over the course of the last four years because a lot of startups came onto the market and started innovating. I think we're starting to see less of that. We really pride ourselves in the innovation that's happening, but we've watched a lot of consolidation among our competitors. And so I think less innovation is happening than it used to. And at the end of the day, that makes it harder to create new innovative ways to do advocacy uh, and also doesn't move the industry as forward as, as much as possible. So it's the innovation that is super exciting and that ultimately benefits the U.S. citizen and the end consumer. How did you get started in the social impact sector? So I was trying to create a presidential youth council, uh, and you and I overlapped a little bit at DoSomething.org, uh, and Do Something had this amazing youth advisory board that advised their CEO and kept it on the right track. And I thought and participated in it and said, this thing is so great, we should have the same one for the president of the United States. And so I ran a big coalition of about 100 organizations trying to get a council of young Americans to advise the president. And while that was ultimately unsuccessful, that's what led me to have the idea for starting Quorum and is entirely where I am today. So to all the social entrepreneurs out there, it is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to practice your entrepreneurship skills. And if you're a good social entrepreneur, it's not that big of a leap to go and be an entrepreneur and be in the business world as well. I just got a flashback of running around that group of kids all through New York City. It was terrifying. <laughs> that was a fun trip. Uh, what is some advice you'd give college grads currently looking to enter the social impact sector? To go talk with folks. Um, relationships are going to be one of the most important things for you as a social entrepreneur. There are people out there who have done this before and starting organizations, starting movements, starting businesses, and they've learned a lot of lessons and they want to share it with you. And so not only do you want to learn those lessons, but you also want to go to talk to people that are actually going to be impacted. For us, for me, it was talking to 30 potential clients early on. If you're doing a movement, go talk to 30 people that might join your coalition. Go talk to 30 donors that would give you the seed money and figure out, is that idea or thing that you're working on really the thing that's going to take off and become the next do something.org um, or the next crisis text line? But that continual feedback is going to be what's going to make you the best social, social entrepreneur out there. What is your favorite question to ask? My favorite question to ask is, what's the worst that could happen? And it's a, a little bit of a dark one, but it allows me in many conversations with my team to be able to quickly evaluate a potential decision or a proposal and say, yep, this is totally fine. Go do it. If you're going to fail, the failure is going to be really light. And also to flag items that go, hey, if this doesn't go that well, we really need to think about what our contingency plan is, or this wasn't set up for success because this is just so incredibly risky. And so I find that helps me to make a lot faster decisions. And the team has found that it also helps them to think through worst case scenarios as they think about and plan for new individual items. What career advice did your parents give you that you either followed or did not follow? When I told my mother that I wanted to do a startup, 
she said, oh, honey, that's great. That sounds like a nice thing to do between college and graduate school. And have to say that I do not think I'm going to be going to graduate school as we're five years in and 100 people strong and still going strong along. But realizing that, you know, a startup is a really wonderful thing to do, whether it's a nonprofit or whether it's for profit. And to go and take the opportunity to do that because you're going to learn so much and you're going to grow so fast. And in the wise words of my mother, if it doesn't work out, you could still go to graduate school. <laughs> and on that note, how do people find you? How do people help you? Most certainly. So we're at www.quorum.us. Uh, we have a wide array of case studies about the work that we're doing, which is also helpful if you want to learn more about the platform or just want to learn more about advocacy in general. I'm on Twitter at Amalia Worth. I run my own Twitter account and so happily will engage and reply. Also works pretty well for direct messages. Email it's alex at quorum.us. Uh, and certainly for others out there, if you've got a, a couple of questions or want advice as you go, feel free to drop me a note and certainly happy to, to send over a reply. Alex, this has been fascinating. I've learned a ton. And frankly, that's the only thing that really matters about this podcast that I have fun. But I appreciate you and your time and what you're building. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter at Whole Whale. And thanks for joining us.